and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we are on our penultimate episode of the year. I know. Can you believe it? No. <laughs> it's like nearly six months that you've had the delight of us. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It is. I'm glad we stuck with it. Yeah, me too. I'm proud of us. <laughs> and our ultimate episode of the year will be coming on Christmas Day, I think, which yes. is a nice coincidence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. A gift for you all. Yes. Enjoy that. I'm sure it'll be the first thing that you do. <laughs> but it's not Christmas yet. No. So what is your highlight from this week? I wasn't sure what my highlight was this week because I've like barely done anything. Um... <laughs> outside of like work and writing and buying Christmas presents so I thought I'd just shout out two films that I watched at the weekend. I had the flat to myself and thought I'd have like a wee movie night Mm -hmm. so watched Dead Poet Society which I've seen many times but I hadn't watched in a few years so that was great. I think it's my favourite of Robin Williams's films. I've still never seen it but I think it will be once I watch it. Yeah hard to narrow down though because he has so many good ones obviously but yeah dark academia vibes which I'm very much into at the moment Mm. and I also watched Chemical Hearts which is fairly new on Amazon Prime and it's got Lily Reinhart and Austin Abrams in it Um, yeah it's quite dark for like a coming of age type film but I, I really liked it I thought it was good and the soundtrack was really good as well. So yeah, that was that's my highlight, my wee movie night with myself. Oh. <laughs> what about you? Well, my highlight was fairly easy because I graduated last week. <laughs> yes. Um, from my masters with a distinction, by the way. Well done. Um, so online, obviously, the graduation was, but it was still a nice day. Had some wine in the afternoon. Watched the Taylor Swift folklore long pond sessions on Disney Plus. And then I had my little loose, loose term ceremony, which, to be fair to the uni, they, they tried their very best and it was very well put together. Mm-hmm. But it was essentially a PowerPoint. So I watched my name come up on the little PowerPoint and I had some Prosecco. And then, yeah, me and you watched some Christmas stuff and had yep. cake. So it was great. It yep. was a great day. Yeah, that was my highlight. <laughs> had a good time. Nice. infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Betrayals by Bridget Collins, which before I even introduce it, just want to say this is one of the most beautiful books that I own, like just physically. Yeah, she says that a lot, but this one actually is. No, like this genuinely, it it's, it's up there. It's like a hardcover and the dust jacket is like black with gold foil and these like dark flowers, but when you take the dust jacket off, it's like this deep burgundy with like gold foiling all over it and like a different design and there's different designs front and back they have like elements from the story in them and all the edges are sprayed pink as well and I'm, it's I'm really a big fan of the sprayed edges yeah and it's signed as well which I didn't realise when I bought it so that was a nice surprise I think we should put that up on the socials for some book porn mm. for people because yeah. it is a particularly nice book I do agree anyway Mm -hmm. so this came out last month on the 12th of november and it's bridget collins's second adult fiction i actually talked about her first novel the binding near the start of this podcast i think it was episode two Mm. 
Yeah, it was early. Yeah, and if you remember that episode, I said so little about the actual plot because everything is a spoiler and today is going to be the same. (laughs) Um, So something that connects those two books is that Collins sets up like a tragedy at the start of the book and then you have to keep reading to first find out what the tragedy actually is Mm -hmm. and then to find out why it happened. Yeah. So I'm not really going to talk about plot today, uh, but I will give you guys like a description of what's going on before I go into all the analysis stuff. So this book is set at a mysterious academy called Montvert. It's in like an unnamed place in presumably Europe because a lot of the terminology used is like it sounds like it has origins in French. Yeah. And this is where I do my disclaimer that I'll probably mispronounce some words because I've not done French for six or seven years. Yeah, I think I've not done French for about ten years. I did it higher. Ah, yeah, so I didn't. Yeah. I did it some. But yeah, it's it's hidden away in the mountains and it's an academy for young men to study the national game, which is called the Grand Jeu, which translates to the Great Game in English. And in her author's note, Collins gives credit to a novel by Herman Hesse called The Glass Bead Game in which he writes a game that, quote, combines maths, music and ideas in an atmosphere of meditation. Um, but she does say that although her game has, like, taken inspiration from his game, the books are very different. Yeah. And I haven't read his, so I can't comment on that, but I will believe her. So, yeah, we have this strange academy, the strange game, and the storytelling is strange as well. The book mostly follows Leo, who is a disgraced political party member. Main character. <laughs> yeah, who has essentially been exiled to Montvert to study the Grand Jeu, but it's not his first time there. Ten years ago, when he was 20, he studied there. So we have like third person narration of Leo in the present, and first person narration through Leo's diary entries from when he was a student previously. Ooh. Yeah, and there's also a character called Claire, who's the Magister Ludi, who's like the person who teaches the Grand Jeu. Um, and we get third-person narration from her. And then there's also another character, a young girl only referred to as the Rat, who somehow lives and hides in this academy. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So the novel's a mix of like all these different points of view. And I don't know, it just works so well to create tension between the characters, because obviously you're getting yeah. different perspectives of different events. And especially because I will hint that it is not Leo who is reading through his old diary. Hmm. <laughs> so, as the title suggests, there are some betrayals going on here. So it's like fun to read how all these, well, fun's maybe the wrong word, but you know what I mean? It's enjoyable yeah. to read how these characters all keep stuff from each other. And also with the passage of time shown through Leo, you have interesting ideas about like hindsight and how you change as you grow up and like all sorts of human things like that. (laughs) Um, Big existential wafty things. Yes. But yeah, as I said, I can't really mention the plot because I'll ruin everything. So what I thought I would do today is give you three passages which talk about the Grand Jeu. Okay. So if you are confused about what the Grand Jeu actually is, it's not because I've done a bad job of explaining it, it's because it's never properly explained. (laughs) So even the characters who play it don't know how to define it. But I find this concept fascinating, so it's why I want to give you guys a few quotes about it. 
these three quotes I'm going to read in order of how they appear in the book just so you can like understand how the ideas like build upon one another or like in some cases how they're conflicting with each other. The first quote is from Claire, the Magister Ludi's perspective, and she's teaching her first class of the semester to the new first year students. The silence has gone on too long. She raps on the surface of the desk, dragging her mind back to her beginning of term speech. The old rhetorical question, what is the grand jeu, gentlemen? Then a pause, of course, as if she expects one of them to reply. I find it hard to believe that no one can tell me, she says. You've done well in the examinations. You've passed your vivas. Anyone? And she pauses again, just enough to make them shift in their seats. Good, she says. I'm glad that none of you is under the illusion that you can define or even explain the grand jeu. That is a good place to start. In the meantime, let us consider the things that it is not. It is not music, she counts on her fingers. It is not maths or science or poetry. It is not art. It is not fiction. It is not performance. It is not even, strictly speaking, a game. By now she is fluent again, the word so familiar she hardly has to concentrate. In your time at Montvert, you'll study all these things and more, but they are merely aspects, elements, of what constitutes the grand jeu. You may make something of all of these things that is not a grand jeu, and equally a grand jeu may have none of them at all. There is only one possible way to answer the question, what is the grand jeu? And that, gentlemen, is by playing it. That is what you'll study with me in this classroom. Oh. <laughs> my brain already hurts. Yes. I, I think this quote's so interesting because, as you might remember, Collins herself described Hesse's glass bead game as combining maths, music and ideas in an atmosphere of meditation. But Claire has just said that that's not what the grand jeu is. Yeah. And you also have that line that says, you can only know what the game is by playing it, which I think is telling like us, the reader, that we're never yeah. going to get a clear definition. That's such a good, like, not get out of jail free card, but like it's just such clever writing to not give yourself a headache when that's not the point of the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, this is the setting, not the plot, so let's not yeah. explain it too much. Definitely. Okay, so let's have a description of the Grand Jeu from someone else. So this passage is from Leo's perspective. It's his like present day perspective, but he's reflecting on a joint game that he and his fellow student Carfax created in their second year called The Dance Macabre. The Dance Macabre, his throat tightens. He has never reread it. He burnt his old games and his notes, textbooks, everything after his final exams. This must be the only copy in the world. Or no, one of two. It'll be filed under Carfax's name as well. There are moves he can still remember. The chime of a bell, the swell of a melody, the algorithm dying while the breathless tune went on. But time has broken the threads which held it together. In his head, it's in fragments. The clicking of dancing bones, flowers and rigor mortis and worms. A feast in a catacomb. A poet being painted in his shroud. The thought of it fills him with contempt. And something else an elusive unease that flickers away if he tries to identify it. It was clever, he can remember that, overflowing with ideas, baroque with excess, like a body teeming with rot. 
English revenge tragedy, Ars Mori, Lullabies, Superstitions, and Carfax's Melody, that brilliant jaunty allegro that made you consider the human body, the echoes and hollows of it, and the maths that Leo discussed without ever admitting that he didn't entirely understand it. Words, images, abstractions, a dark tapestry. Yes, it was clever. But what did any of it have to do with death? Not a scythe in a skull, but death. That was just like the entirety of dark academia oh, yeah. aesthetic, mm-hmm. just like in a passage. Yep. <laughs> I know. So yeah, here Leo mentions moves, so does that make it a dance? He mentions a melody, so does that make it a song? But he also mentions an algorithm and how do you perform an algorithm? Like, how do you make all of these things a game? It's just a really bizarre concept to try and wrap your head around, which is obviously the point, is mm-hmm. you're not meant to know. But I really like that we've got the perspective from a teacher and a former student here on what the Grand Jeu is. And they contrast, interestingly. Like, especially Claire's comment about only knowing the Grand Jeu when you play it and the line where Leo says he never fully understood it, even when he was doing it. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that he's been able to, like, write things, like, bits of it down, mm-hmm. like, document it, mm-hmm. would suggest that you'd have to understand it somewhat. Yeah, but he doesn't, like, he's still questioning it even mm-hmm. ten years later. Oh, I don't know, it's just so good. But yeah, my last quote is from Leo's diary, a bit later in the novel, and what this quote does is describe the Grand Jeu from the perspective of Leo as a student rather than like as an adult and you don't really need to know why for this quote but he is angry about something (laughs) love it so this is titled later wrote that at lunchtime when I was still raging now it's nearly dinner time feeling calmer but a bit strange we had Victorum this afternoon I was still fizzing when I went in, but I got out my sketchbook and pencil and sat down to draw my still life as per usual. Two bottles and a glass. I could draw them in my sleep. The magister used to hover over my shoulder and say things like, how about drawing something else today? And, or perhaps a change of medium? But he finally gave up a couple of weeks ago. It's not quite as good as a nap, but at least it's undemanding. Everyone uses factorum as a way to stop thinking. I'm not the only one. So I was sitting there trying to draw, but I couldn't. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was still seething from the history lesson or because the others were sneaking looks at me as if I might explode at any moment. I flipped through my sketchbook, dozens of bottles and glasses, all more or less similar, all more or less competent. Not even bad. And I thought, I've never even looked at the stupid bottles. I draw them how I think they should look. I draw my mental image of them pictures of pictures. I got to my feet, left my sketchbook where it was and wandered away, winding through the tables and benches. It's the only thing I like about Factorum, the long classroom with all the cupboards and tools and models, crazy paper and wire frames hanging from the ceiling. Everything's a bit dusty, shadowy, a kind of cave where you can find a corner to be unobserved. There's bits everywhere, Rooms off to the side with printing stones and pottery wheels and carpentry tools, but I've never seen anyone use them. At the beginning of last year, the Magister tried to encourage us to experiment, but somehow we all knew that the done thing was to sit in a circle around a still life and pretend to take it seriously. 
Even the people who disappear off to do their own work, Carfax and Paul and Freddy, don't ever actually make anything, as far as I can see. There's so much equipment, so many mouldering projects, paintings, papier-mâché sculptures, collages, faces in plaster of Paris, that it can't always have been like this. There must have been scholars who entered into the spirit of it, but not us. I find myself at the far end of the building, in a bitterly cold storeroom. The snow had drifted up against the window, so it was hard to see anything clearly, but there were piles of planks and boards against one wall and a dried-up pallet resting on a backless chair. I started opening cupboards at random. I found some old tubes of oil paint. They were stiff but still soft. I got one of the bits of wood and squeezed a blob of red paint onto it. First I was only seeing if the colour had stayed fresh, but then I began to spread it out with anything I could find. An old bit of rag, the end of a stiffened brush, my hands. And then I added other tints, different shades of orange and crimson and burgundy, seeing if I could make the red redder. I covered the whole panel with it. I must have looked like a kid, kneeling on the floor, smearing the colour right to the edges. Later I found flicks of dried scarlet in my hair. I lost track of time. It was only when I heard the bell that I came back to reality. I was covered in paint and dust. The panel was a mess of hot colours. Study of an executioner's block. Here and there, the grain of the wood still showed through, but in other places the colour was as thick and shiny as blood. I'd left handprints in it. The shapes where it oozed between my fingers. It was paint and wood, flesh and oil and pigment. It was real. It was the exact opposite of a grand jeu. I'm making it sound like something mystical. It wasn't. It was childish, like scrawling on a wall, wanting to leave my mark, change something. But the thought of it makes me happy. It's stupid. Right now, sitting here, the memory makes my heart lift. I made it. Me. Something honest. (laughs) I love that passage. So do I. (laughs) But yeah, what I really like about this quote is that Leo equates being real and honest as opposite to the Grand Jeu. You get reminded throughout the text that the Grand Jeu is the national game. We have to protect the national game. And there is a political side to this book. I did say earlier that Leo is a disgraced politician, but that makes it sound like he's the bad guy, which I wouldn't exactly agree with. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I find it interesting that this national game, one in which the politicians like is being called the opposite of real and the opposite of honest. And I also just love scenes where, like, the academic character lets go, which you've got in Leo. I also really like that there's moments in that passage where he's like, oh, it's stupid, or like, oh, I'm making it sound like it was mystical. There's lots of moments like that throughout the book where it's like, I don't know, it's like he's writing to an audience. I... I really appreciated that. Yeah, because I do that. (laughs) I think everyone that writes a diary has this fear that someone in the future might find it. Yeah. And that you might be perceived wrong. Yeah. Or, like, at least I think most people do make little notes to make sure that even in your private space, you're not being perceived wrongly. Yeah, definitely. And that is, like, a huge theme in this book. Um, Obviously, I, again, couldn't mention it because of it just plays too much into characters but that is a big thing especially when Leo's concerned like he wants 
people to perceive him in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, so I like that even when he's 20 and writing in his diary, he's like making it sound as if he's writing to an audience. Also, like that idea, it, it's like also bringing him back to the, you know, the academic because I think, like that scene where he lets go, he's like, oh, I, I was totally lost. But yeah. Obviously, then you get when he's writing about it and he's very aware of himself again. Mhm. So yeah, I think we're all less clear on what the grand jeu is now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this book's wonderful, and I don't think I'd have liked it if the game was spelled out for me. No. I like that it's elusive, that like you can only know it if you're the one who's made it, or maybe not even then. And I like that the definition of it changes from character to character or through time. Mm. And again, I said this when I talked about the binding, but Collins's world building is just fantastic. And this mysterious nature of the game plays into the already mysterious setting. I mean, I'm sure you can tell from particularly that last passage, like her just actual writing is just so good it's like yeah it's so vivid yeah you can just picture everything and yeah I also loved the relationship between two characters who I cannot name but I will just say if you like the enemies to lovers trope <laughs> and if you like the whole dark academia vibes then you will probably like this book but be warned there is tragedy ahead and I gasped out loud so many times while reading this because there's so many like brilliant twists and turns and yeah, that's me today. I can't say much else, but it's really wonderful. <laughs> I say this about all the books that you recommend and then I barely ever read them. But I know. Like, I think I will read that one. Yeah, I think you'd like it, definitely. Uh, okay, so what are you infatuated with? So my infatuation this week is maybe less of an infatuation, more of like a fascination. <laughs> um, but what I want to talk about is everyone's favourite or <laughs> least favourite popular poetry siren Rupi Kaur. So Rupi Kaur is an Indian-born Canadian poet. She is annoyingly only 28 (laughs) and she has authored three best-selling poetry collections. Milk and Honey, which absolutely blew up a few years ago, Mm -hmm. followed that up with The Sun and Her Flowers and she's recently released her third one, which I'll talk about in a second. And not to put too fine a point on it, she's in entirely transformed the face of modern poetry yeah since milk and honey she basically created instagram poetry exactly yeah and speaking of instagram she has been all over my social media lately as she should be because her third collection homebody has once again (laughs) burst all the bestsellers lists um it was released last week on november 17th and it's already the sunday times bestseller so it's really inspirational to see a woman that's close in age to us and writing what we would call like pop or Instagram poetry and mm-hmm. finding success, more power to our congratulations, Rupi Kaur. <laughs> and also, if you're interested in the world of poetry but you aren't quite sure where to start, her books would be a very good addition to your Christmas list. She's very accessible, her works are mostly very short and they're often self-explanatory. The way that her poems are formatted, the titles are styled like signatures at the bottom of the poems, and they often illuminate the main idea or the theme of the poem above them. So you're never left wondering if you get it or not. Mm. I'll read out a couple of ones like that so that you see what I mean. So this one is from Milk and Honey. You cannot leave and have me too. I cannot exist in two places at once. And the title is When You Ask If We Can Still Be Friends. Mm. And then there's also like, they're also very short, which is nice. (laughs) 
even her slightly more abstract ones. You wrap your fingers around my hair and pull. This is how you make music out of me. And the title is Foreplay. <laughs> which is funny. <laughs> and a third one to just, I'm going to read quite a few to this week because they are so short. I want to give people a good idea of what she's about. This is from The Sun and Her Flowers and it's the title poem. What is it with you and sunflowers, he asks. I point to the field of yellow outside. Sunflowers worship the sun, I tell him. Only when it arrives do they rise. When the sun leaves, they bow their heads in mourning. That is what the sun does to those flowers. It's what you do to me. The sun and flowers. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. So you can see the way that she's become so popular mm. because there's a lot of artiness in her books. Um, most of the poems, or a lot of the poems, come with illustrations that she does herself and the layout's very stylized. It's very, very pretty to look at. Um, but there isn't any mystery or any pretentiousness about them mm-hmm. because they are so grounded and so like self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. And so where most people perceive poetry as being quite like impenetrable, this is like porous. Yeah. <laughs> like you can really get in. And that brings me to what I actually want to talk about with Rupi Kaur because what I find fascinating about her is the question of her talent. Mm. I've been asked a weird amount in the past few weeks, probably just because Homebody has been launched and people have been talking about her, but I've been asked a few times if I'm a fan of her work, if I like her, if I think she's good. And the truth is I actually don't know a definitive answer to that. And more to the point, I think maybe all those questions have different answers. Yeah. So I thought I'd answer them. Okay. Well, I'll try. Yeah. So I'll start with the easiest ones. I like art, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rupi Kaur seems very cool. She's brought a lot of joy and a lot of comfort and made a lot of people feel seen through her work. Yeah. I think, um, sorry to jump in, but no. like I have read these books. It's actually my copies yeah, that Rebecca has. But yeah, I think I don't like all of her poetry. But the ones that I do really like are the ones where I've been like, oh, I felt like that. And yeah. she's put that into words that Very I well. can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I like her for that. Yeah. I like her because she's raised the profile of like poetry as a concept back into the mainstream. Yeah. So I'm very grateful to her for that. People who have read no other poetry read Rupi Kaur mm. because she's managed to perfectly embody artist and influencer because so much goes into the presentation of her work, both into the books and social media, I think. I Mm. think that's how she's managed to do that, which is cool. She writes very loudly and clearly and unapologetically about body politics and internalised misogyny and generational trauma Mm. and female sexuality and the immigrant experience. And I think that's really cool. So she's very much a modern figure of pop culture, and I love that for her, and I'm a fan. Am I a fan of her work? is kind of what you just said. Yeah. I am, but in the same way that I'm a fan of other pop figure culture icons like, I don't know, like Katy Perry or like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. <laughs> or like Stephen King. Like some of the stuff she makes I really like and then some of it feels like filler. Mm. And I'll show you an example. Again, these are from Milk and Honey because it's the one that I've read the most. Yeah, so I like this one. Don't mistake salt for sugar. If he wants to be with you, he will. It's that simple. 
Mm. I really like this one. It's a slightly longer one for her, actually. Did you think I was a city? Big enough for a weekend getaway. I am the town surrounding it. The one you've never heard of, but always passed through. There are no neon lights here, no skyscrapers or statues, but there is thunder. For I make the bridges tremble. I am not street meat, I am homemade jam, thick enough to cut the sweetest thing your lips will touch. I am not police sirens, I am the crackle of a fireplace. I'd burn you, and you still couldn't take your eyes off me, because I'd look so beautiful doing it. You'd blush. I am not a hotel room, I am home. I am not the whiskey you want, I am the water you need. Don't come here with expectations and try to make a vacation out of me. Mm. I don't remember that one. I like that one. I remember that was the one I think that, like, I was like, no, okay, I like yeah. this. <laughs> I'm intrigued to know, that those are my post-its, aren't they? The ones yeah. that are, I'm intrigued to know what ones I put post-its in. I'm going to have to look through it and see. <laughs> but then, so those ones, I'll, I'll read this, this one first. This is one that I don't like so much, and it's just a two-line one. Do not bother holding on to the thing that doesn't want you. And the title is, You Cannot Make It Stay. Mm. And that, I think, is more the typical Rupikar poem that people associate with her. It's, like, pithy, and it's more advice than observation, and it's, like, a kind of mantra. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of stuff that allows her to seep into influencer territory, and it's the stuff that I actively dislike. Um, I don't find anything in the words of the poems like that, but that's not to say there isn't anything to find. I just don't. Whereas the other two, they both had a conceit. The first one was very small, salt and sugar. Um, the second one was longer, the idea of a place, a city. I just felt like there was a bit more imagination yeah. sparked in it. And I don't know, because often I like like a didactic female voice just telling you things. Yeah. But I think I prefer that in prose. And something about the presentation of that as poetry, when I see it as sometimes just a sentence with a return in it yeah and where i don't really think that the line break brings any extra emphasis or scrutiny to the words and there's no real attention to cadence or sound or rhythm yeah really do it for me and that feels like filler and that disappoints me when there are so many pieces with more to offer in them yeah so that would be my answer to am i a fan of her work yes some (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the final thing that i've been asked is do i think she's good I think she's talented and I think her popularity and resonance with so many people stand as proof that like whatever she's doing she's very good at it Mm -hmm. because there are loads of people now posting like pithy sayings on Instagram with illustrations yeah but she's the only one that you can name yeah like she's obviously doing something right even if not everything she does is my jam yeah so if she is good at what she does then I'd say that the question that most people are actually asking is is this poetry yeah because that's like what it always comes down to and that's become a question with quite funny social politics attached to it in Mm. poetry circles (laughs) because popular poetry no matter who it is is always the butt of the joke when people think of themselves as serious writers yeah as we know it's like YA fiction Mm. yeah you know ripped apart by literary yeah authors and so when people answer Rupi Carter to the question, who's your favourite poet, 
there's always this little like wry exchange mm. of glances that people seem to say like oh they must not know anyone else which is dick behavior by yep. the way get a life just because something's popular doesn't mean it's bad exactly people have always had a problem with poetry that is accessible or easily quotable yeah a few years ago it was spoken word and button poetry mm. and now a lot of the poets like Rudy Francisco and Sabrina Benham and Olivia Gatwood and Phil Kay are on their second or third collections and they are now quote-unquote credible yeah but they weren't before yeah and one of the most popular modern poets Wendy Cope who wrote The Orange which people love sharing on Instagram now mm was criticised when she emerged as a young poet for writing in rhyme and for writing funny poems because her contemporaries thought that made her not a real poet. Now she's cemented herself among the greats. Mm. So I'm finding it really ironic that it is now people like Wendy Cope who want to gatekeep poetry and differentiate serious poets from insta-poets like Rupi Carr. And of course they are different. You don't go to Rupi Carr for the same things that you go to, like, Sylvia Plath for. Yeah. And I do think that the problem that people have is that Rupi Carr is more than a poet. She's, like, a literary celebrity. And she does play to that, which is absolutely her prerogative. Yeah. But that doesn't make her not also a poet. Mm. So, in conclusion, I do think she's good and I do think she writes poetry. I don't think I'm infatuated with her as a poet. I think I'm infatuated with her as a figure who proves in her brand and in her work that the sad, alcoholic, complicated (laughs) image of poetry doesn't have to die, Mm. but that the frame can be expanded to include the new, Mm. simple and healthy, because that's very much her, like, she's very much about healing Mm. and being good to yourself and being kind to yourself. And poetry is very, like masochistic yeah and it kind of prides itself on being that way which Mm -hmm. is dumb so yeah i think current poets like her are often considered with contempt as if their existence threatens to dilute some sort of pureness of craft Mm. and to that i'd say get a fucking grip (laughs) i don't like everything she makes but i'm very glad she makes it and sometimes her one line strings of words are absolutely beautiful because they're all that's needed for example (laughs) Page 185 of The Sun and Our Flowers. Together we are an endless conversation. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's my thoughts on Rupi Carr, and I've been yeah. dying to get that out. <laughs> Have you heard of the book uh, Milk and Vine? No. So it's like a parody book of Rupi Carr, and it is popular vines ah. put into like the style of Rupiker with like all the random line breaks and it's just I don't know part I remember the first time I saw it I was like oh that's quite funny and then the more I thought about it I was like actually like who's winning from that yeah like I was like what like I don't know I think it depends because I do make like I sometimes send a string of texts, like you know, really short texts in <laughs> a row, and then I'll put at the bottom Ruby Carr, <laughs> yeah, because it looks like one of her poems in it. Like yeah, sometimes she does just appear to put random line breaks. Yeah, in. but that doesn't m- make the good bits of her work not yeah. good. I don't know. And also, you're just doing that to a friend, whereas that's someone making money, money off of making fun of her, which yeah. I don't agree with at all, because. Like you said, there are very important themes that she talks about. 
Yeah, and she's like, yeah, I think what she's done is like, people people think that the simplicity of her work is somehow bad, and I'm like, yeah, but she just said stuff that no one was saying. Yeah. And if if she's had to put it in a way that looks like verse, mm. even if it's not really verse, for yeah, people to look at it, then fine. Also, people mourn when poetry is too complicated. Exactly. So it's like, so what do you want? Yeah. If it, it's basically people saying, I understand that, so it can't be poetry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think, like, it's it's totally fine to be aware of, like, artistic flaws and to have a critical opinion. Yeah. But don't shit on the person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and don't shit on their fans, either. Yeah. That's that was my infatuation, and it was a little bit of a wild hard one, um, because quite honestly, I've not really finished any books lately. <laughs> I thought that was interesting, though. But yeah, I think I think she's a really interesting figure. I'm interested to read because I will read Homebody, mm. even though, like I say, I'm not always so taken by everything. I'm so interested in like the way that she comes at themes because Milk and Honey was essentially like the story of a relationship yeah. and a breakup and a healing from that. Yeah. The Sun and Her Flowers is much more about like self-love and acceptance of like family. Yeah. Yeah, I I read both of those. I think what the post-its are from that are in my copies were was when I did my creative writing folio that was all about like love and heartbreaking grief and all yeah. that. I I think I referenced quite a few of her poems and like in the like essay part of the yeah. of the folio. What what are you? That one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're not gonna read that one. <laughs> but yeah, like I think I think that was why I have all the post its in there. Yeah. It was because I was like, oh, I'm writing about love, so I should probably look at Rupi Kaur because. Mm. And also, the- like, she was total. She's total medicine for heartbreak oh yeah when my um i hope she doesn't mind me saying this but when my cousin went through quite a bad breakup she asked me she was like what should i read Mm because she was like she wanted to like read something to help and i just was like both of those books yeah definitely and i read that's when i read them as well as when i had a bad breakup because it's as well that's like a real virtue of how easy it is yeah because when you're in that state you can't really take anything (laughs) yeah but her poems are just so easy to consume but they do stay yeah. with you and yeah. yeah if that makes me not a intelligent poet <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> writing has been quite positive again this week um i've not actually like written as much because i've been doing some like in-depth planning of my final like third of my novel which is proven to be the hardest part to write which is probably expected yeah um, well, i mean if you've got a middle that's pretty I, I do have a middle which is yeah but yeah the planning's going well <laughs> so i'm happy about that Good. i've still been like talking to uh, our friend Stephanie each week to kind of like keep each other writing and we, we've basically been like leaving comments on each other's work just mm-hmm. not necessarily like changes just like oh this made me think this this made me think that and she left so many that just 
showed me that she got it. Yeah. Like she was like, oh, this character's feeling that. I wonder if this will happen. I'm like, yeah, that is going to happen. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It, it feels good to like know that someone gets it. Definitely. Um, and you did that. You yeah. didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one challenge, if you could call it that, that I faced this week is that I keep having ideas for other novels. <laughs> Which I feel like I should add context and say that this never happens to me. No. Like, the idea that I had for the novel I'm working on is the first I've had since I was, like, 15 or 16. Or, like, the first, like, long-form yeah. idea. And now I'm writing this one, but I keep getting, like, little sparks of inspiration for other projects. And I've, like, I've written ideas down with plans to, like, write them in the future. But I just wanted to, like, use this space to ask if this has ever happened to you. I know you write shorter things typically... So, like, you're more likely to have, like, ideas on the go. Mm. But have you ever had to, like, tell yourself to really shelf something until you have the time for it? Or do you like to write as soon as you get the idea? Oh, it's hard because because I do write shorter things, when I get an impulse, I tend to just go with it before yeah. it dies. Yeah. I have... So the result of that being that most of my shelved things are my longer form ideas. Yeah. Because... I have this fear that like it's a very like old timey romantic view of poetry but I have a fear that if I don't write it when I'm like in the feeling then I won't write it as well. Yeah. Um, so I have to like just do that and then that takes up all my time so I have 5,000 ideas a week mm. and then I don't actually sit down and write my fiction. But the like there are there have been times more so at uni because it's more structured where I've had to like choose for like an assignment or something mm. like okay this is what I'm gonna lean into and then yeah it seems like once you've made a choice then every other idea in the world seems more alluring yeah because I'll, I'll be like no I'm gonna do this idea I'm gonna do this theme for this collection or whatever yeah you know I'll start writing a collection about like my female relatives for example and I'll be like yeah that's a good theme I've got loads that I can write about there that's fine and then the next week I'll be like I want to write a love poem or I'll be like I want to write the death yeah the grass is always greener yeah definitely but that's cool that you've been having new ideas maybe this like habit of writing all the time has yeah awakened something in me awakened your inspiration yeah I think so like I I did write like a a scene when I say a scene I mean like two paragraphs Mm. of like a bit because I had it in my head and I had dialogue and mm. I was like right I'm gonna have to write that down or else I'll never ever remember that so I have like 400 words of a future project <laughs> like on my laptop but um does it stress you out or does it make you excited it makes me excited but I'm also like when am I ever going to get around to that because this project feels never-ending yeah I know it's not I but mean, like it's been not even a year and you've almost got a full draft I know and I'm very close to finishing. Like I've said this before, my goal is like mid-January to end it. And I, th- I think I'll get the first draft done. But I'm well aware that the redraft is the harder bit. <laughs> so... <laughs> Don't think about that. One thing at a time. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's... it's that's why I said I'm like, I don't know if this is exactly a challenge. Because it's obviously a good thing yeah, to have ideas. Like... But it's I've never had it before. So I'm like, huh. Weird. You just have to practice um, writing monogamy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't get distracted by the shiny new idea. I know. But the muse is definitely in this flat. 
I know. In the last couple of weeks, I will say. Yeah. There is lots of like ideas and creativity. Yeah. Boosting around. That is very true. But anyway, how is how's your writing been? Well, I have a lot of writing chat this week. <laughs> Strap in, guys. <laughs> it's been a busy old week for yes. this for the writing career. As anyone with the misfortune of following me on Instagram will be well aware by now. Last week I put out five very different pieces, some myself, some through other publications, so it's been really fun, but oh my god, I'm so tired of promoting myself. <laughs> I didn't realise it was five. Yeah, I put out five in a week. Wow. Um, didn't write five in a week, want to make that very clear, <laughs> it's been months of work, but they all happened to come out this week, and even though I'm very tired of all the self-promo, you're going to hear about it all again. <laughs> so... First, I put out two poems on my own Instagram as entries to smaller competitions. The first is called Maybe Don't. It's a sad love poem that I'm very proud of about... I've tried to summarise each one in case, you know, as a little advert. (laughs) (laughs) It's about the gulf between two people that hangs in the word maybe. And it's written as a response to Maisie Peters' song of the same title, Maybe Don't, which is a banger, by the way. (laughs) I also did my first ever erasure poem, which is basically when you take a piece of existing text and black bits of it out and make a new poem out of the pieces that are left. It was really just a bit of fun and I used Olivia Gatwood's Ode to Pink, which I think is the most fun poem ever written, (laughs) and turned it into a love letter to the act of writing called Ode to Ink. It's done in pink glitter, if that incentivises anyone to look at it. (laughs) Um, I also want to say... It's a really fun and accessible way to write poetry or even find prompts for prose fiction Mm. is just to take like Tipex or black pen or whatever and black out until you come to a word that you like and then leave that word, keep blacking out and do it over and over until you're left with a selection that makes you happy. Yeah. That's a fun exercise. As well as that, I had a piece of my dissertation, which was the long music memoir project that I've mentioned before. Mm published on Dundee University's Review of the Arts. It's called Under the Weather and it's an essay basically comparing Glasgow to Dundee. It's got ideas of home and family and confronting like one of the more difficult times of my life. So it was a weird one to put out but I've had some really nice responses to it so I'm glad that I did. Can I ask did did they pick that one or did you? They asked me to send in an extract um, right. of a certain amount of words oh, okay. and that was the one that best kind of fit right yeah um, just curious it's also the one that I got the best feedback about from my tutors so yeah. I was like yeah sure that one <laughs> <laughs> and another piece which I wrote about a month ago went out on the website of The Rally which is a dope feminist online magazine that I've mentioned before it's run by Charlie Brogan and Julia Oliphant who are very talented writers in their own right and this month's issue is Desire, so my contribution was, shockingly, another love poem. <laughs> but it's not sad. It's got all that good yearning. <laughs> <laughs> it's called After Looking at My Pink Sapphire Rings, and it's possibly one of my top three favourite things that I've ever written. Mm. So if you're going to look at any, go look at that, because that's my favourite one. <laughs> and finally, I published a long piece that started as a spoken word prose poem in the very first issue of part two which is a Dundee-based arts, culture and current affairs magazine. It's also an apparel brand, co-founded by my good friend Connell Angus. And the piece I contributed is called 2020. It's my only explicitly political poem. I wrote it in 2018. 
when I was feeling nostalgic for days of less <laughs> political responsibility. <laughs> Wall. <laughs> that piece is sort of a rallying cry to my future self to like not demonize your wistfulness, but to know better than to act mm. wistful. You know, you have to get up and be political. <laughs> yeah. Um, I came across it again this year, and it was much more relevant than I could have conceived it would be. Yeah. So I'm quite happy that it's out. I hope it perks people up with motivational rage <laughs> this entire year. So that's all my self promo. That that's that part of the podcast. <laughs> if any listeners do read the pieces, mm-hmm. please send in your thoughts. I'm really yeah. Big, so I like to know what people's responses are, <laughs> even if they're bad. I'll even take criticism this time. Yeah, this time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, don't give me any criticism. But I'll take it this time. Also, last time I said that I'd update on like current writing processes. Yeah. And I had mentioned I was interested in Joni Mitchell's idea from her song Case of You. I could drink a case of you and I'd still be on my feet. Mm-hmm. And how that feeling could be manifested in other images. This is kind of a cop-out, but when I was rereading my Sapphire Rings piece, I realised I'd kind of already done it. Oh, okay. <laughs> the image is laundry. And the line mm. is, I come back to you the way I come back for a single sock dropped on the way to the washing machine. <laughs> and I realised that I think of the sort of selfless case of you devotion as a kind of comfortable chore. Like, I don't mind doing laundry. It's constant. It can be annoying, but it's part of life that you do on autopilot. Yeah. So a bit less dramatic than Joni Mitchell saying she could drink a case of sock and still be <laughs> on her feet. But I think that's my my answer. Every time I do laundry, I drop a sock. And every time I go back for it, and I don't mind. Aww. <laughs> I like that. So it, that was already done when we last recorded. But I did enjoy thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and as for the actual creation of content, rather than just plugging stuff that I've already put out, I'm off work for a week next week. And my plan is to sit down and properly make a chat book. Ooh. So that's going to involve rereading a lot of pieces and thinking about themes and styles, editing them and ordering them, which mm. is an art in itself for a poetry collection, yeah. and formatting it. So that's a pretty new process for me. I've only ever made one chapbook and it was more of a pamphlet, it was only 12 pages. Mm. Whereas this one, I think I'm aiming for about 30 to 35 pages. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. And I'll probably document that process, so if anyone is interested, or if anyone's done it before and has any tips, please contact me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... Nice, that's exciting. All the writing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do, but I thought before I did, I would just mention Spotify Wrapped because oh, yeah. that, happened that happened today, the day we were recording that, and whatever the Apple equivalent is. What's it's it like called? Replay or something. It's cool. Shy, but... uh, so I just thought it'd be nice to share our top artists. Do you still have yours available? Yes, one second. So my top five artists of 2020 are going to be no surprise to anyone. <laughs> well, actually, I've probably not mentioned some of them, but. So number one was Five Seconds of Summer. We we knew that was going to happen. Yes. Number two is Motherfolk, who I don't think I mentioned on here, but I love them. They're so good. Three is Bad Sons. Again, I don't think I mentioned them on here. 
They're so good. Maybe. The band Camino, who I, I definitely have mentioned on here before, because they did that song Berenstein, which I mm. really love. And Five was the Wombats, which was quite surprising to me. But I, in fairness, I have listened to like three of their songs on repeat for like the whole year. I don't so. think I could name a Wombat song, but I know that whenever you are listening to one, I go, oh, that's good, who is it? And you say the Wombats. And yeah. Like, oh. I feel like this year I listened to Turn, Greek Tragedy, and I feel like there was a third one which I listened to a lot but yeah I really like the Wombats I think they're great and yeah apparently I listened to 35,968 minutes of music that's impressive (laughs) what about you? so mine is a surprise to everyone Um, (laughs) my top artist was Taylor Swift yeah I listened to 138 hours of Taylor Swift. <laughs> My second top artist I listened to 34 hours of. So wow. that's, that's the figures that we're working That's with. an achievement. I, yeah. I feel like I should get a medal or something. But <laughs> again, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to listen to 138 hours of Taylor Swift. My, my rest of my top ones were Phoebe Bridgers. Again, no shock there. Mm. Maisie Peters. Mm. Halsey. I don't know if I've mentioned that I love on this, but I love Halsey. <laughs> um, I'm reading her poetry book right now, actually. Mm. And O Wonder, who are a kind of mm. smaller London indie alternative duo. I listened to their album, oh Jesus, what's it called? No One Else Can Wear Your Crown, um, mm. which came out this year. And I listened to that in the, the original days of lockdown so much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. I also apparently discovered 677 new artists this year, which has baffled me. That's insane. (laughs) I don't know how I've done that. Oh, and my top song was I Really Love You by Gibbs, which I think I mentioned on here once as well. That was my my top song. I think I said that I used it for writing. Mm -hmm. A lot of the songs that are on my, like, the playlist that Spotify compiles of your top hundred songs, the majority of them are on my writing playlist. Yeah, well, that makes um, sense. So yeah, but yeah, that was fun. I just wanted to mention that also because already a few of you have like sent in the fact that our podcast is on your top podcasts of twenty twenty, which is mad. And Thank you. Yeah, that's so exciting. So if it is also on yours, can you please send it to us, like the little screenshot, because. It makes me excited. Yeah, it makes me really excited to see. Like, I still, I still can't believe that people listen. <laughs> I know. Like faithfully, I'm like, I can't believe you listened to one episode of this and then one yeah. another one. Like, also, did you see that Sabrina Benham liked our photo yesterday? No. Yeah, she did. Oh. Your little advent calendar. Thanks, Sabrina. That's so nice. Yeah, and also my top song was August from Folklore, Oh. Um, which comes as no shock. <laughs> Yeah, my, my friend Scott actually messaged me being like, I, I put up a story of, of my top artists, and he's like, Rebecca, it's all so sad. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to be happy. Yeah. Which amused me. Mine's all men and yours is all women as well. Yeah. We have a good balance. We do. Yeah. I know, it's funny, like, there is a lot of overlap in our music tastes, but I don't feel like you can view that statistically. No. <laughs> like, I think it's just because we play music out loud in the flat and then whoever is listening to it is like oh that's good yeah like 
but I don't think we ever actually like sit and listen to it on our own, no. if that makes sense. I, I prefer it that way anyway, like I like, I don't want to saturate myself with your music. Yeah. Because I like when I come in and your music's on. Yeah. Because it's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll get on with my quick fire favourite. Okay, that's a really quick, quick fire <laughs> So I have a TV pick this week, which is quite unlike me these days. But yeah, my pick is probably no surprise to you, but it's Dash and Lily, the new Christmas series on Netflix. It's based on the book Dash and Lily's Book of Dares by Rachel Kahn and David Levithan, which I must have read when I was like 12 or 13, I think. So I don't remember all the details that well, but I remember the story and I think they did a really good job of making it into a series and yeah it's basically about like a snarky boy and a like naive girl uh yeah who like set each other dares through a red notebook hidden between their favorite book and their favorite bookstore and it's just adorable it's so cute and like we'll just put you in the christmas spirit like i can totally see it being like a new christmas tradition of mine to like watch it each year yeah because it's quite short it is short i can totally see that as well i it's one of those few series that is really sweet and heartwarming. Yeah. But doesn't make me feel sick. Yeah, I think it would be a good, like, if you need to sit down for a few hours and wrap your Christmas presents, mm-hmm. like, stick that on, like, because it must be about, like, three hours or something total, like, yeah, the episodes, that, if that. The episodes are, like, half an hour, they Probably, not? like, two and something hours. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's really good. I'm intrigued to see if they do more seasons because there are other books. Ooh. Although I've not read them. But I, I don't know. Part of me kind of hopes it's just a one-off because I thought it's perfect like as yeah. it is. I don't know if the format of the notebook comes back in the other books. Yeah, and I think like I don't think it would... you could have those characters but they are quite archetypal characters. Yeah. It's the story that's special yeah. about it. Yeah. So yeah, I'd rather that they just left it. But yeah, really enjoyed it. That's my quick fire favourite. Nice. What is yours? Mine is also a TV pick this Ooh. week. Um, it's not the same one, don't worry. <laughs> um, but my quick fire favourite is The Queen's Gambit on oh, Netflix. Oh yeah, I need to watch this. It's so good. So I'm sure everyone knows this by now because it's been massive. But it follows a 1960s chess prodigy as she navigates the world of competitive chess as a woman. It's weirdly sexy (laughs) for a show about chess but yeah I'm definitely not alone in having this as a favourite I had the biggest opening week of any Netflix original series ever oh really? yeah so it's already mega popular and there is a total cacophony of voices talking about it Mm. but I just wanted to say it is really good I watched most of it I watched the first one a few weeks ago and then kind of forgot to go on with it Mm. and I watched the rest of it this weekend it's seven episodes, each is about an hour. It's really good. Yeah. The costume and the sets are just beautiful. Mm. And the score is really good as well. I think that if people are a fan of Mad Men, they'll really enjoy it because it's the same kind of like dark and witty and like glamorous. Yeah. I think it was Heath Ledger that originally wanted to make it a thing. Really? Yeah. But obviously, you know. Yeah. Don't talk about that. That's it makes me sad. That's cool. Yeah. But um yeah, no, it's just it's just it's a really satisfying series as well. I sometimes have qualms about Netflix originals because sometimes they are depressing. Yeah. Like there's often a lot of grit and darkness and not a lot of light. 
Yeah. There is a lot of grit and darkness in this, but there is a lot of winning too. Mm. So it's quite uplifting. Yeah. Well, I've also been watching the new season of The Crown, just oh. to shout that out. It's been very good. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. The girl, i sorry, I can't remember her name, but the girl who plays Diana is brilliant. She's so good. Yeah, I've seen, like, my mum was watching it, um, and I saw, like, a little clip of it, and I was like, yeah, she's she's doing that real well. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a rant for us this week? I do have a rant this week. I'm, ba- <laughs> I'm back <with> <laughs> And it, it's a wee bit more serious and a bit longer than, oh, okay. the, than the normal frivolity, I'm afraid. But I have some capital T thoughts. Okay. Um, and I would like to share them. So last month was November, as we know. That's how calendars work. <laughs> um, which means it was also Movember, which is okay. when all of our testosterone-blessed loved ones yes. got their moustaches and looked after in the name of men's mental health and suicide prevention. So I wanted to just take a wee minute. Our listeners may have gleaned that we, and particularly me, are quite female-centric in our media, which is a conscious thing, because we've grown up with the default worldview being male, and it's like refreshing and essential for us to keep diluting that with non-straight white male perspectives. Mm. So like we're going to keep doing that. <laughs> but at the risk of undoing centuries of feminist progress and delighting the incels, I will admit that sometimes I'm so immersed in the media of feminine experience and like the lived experience of being female that I do forget about the problems of the world that are uniquely male problems. So, I mean, what a privilege (laughs) to have the space to forget that, but I do. So while poor mental health and suicide is obviously not a uniquely male problem, this month sort of reminds us that it's a disproportionately male problem. Yeah. And one like teeny tiny but still important breadcrumb of that problem which has been illuminated to me recently and I can't stop thinking about is the outdated way that mental illness is still perceived by sectors which to a large extent are populated mainly by men. That is a problem in itself but one thing at a time. Mm. Sectors like the emergency services and defence may be a lot more gender balanced nowadays in terms of who they actually employ but their image is still overwhelmingly masculine. And something that I didn't know but I do now is that a lot of roles in these sectors, in spite of the Equality Act, have clauses which all but rule out employment for the mentally ill. For the sake of legality, they do not rule it out, but reading between the lines they make it pretty hard. Mm. If you look up the mental health section on the FAQs for the Army, Navy or Police, that section is way longer and filled with way more legal jargon than almost any other. And despite them prefacing almost everything with case-by-case basis, they have a lot of very sweeping generic rules. They don't like you to be on medication for mental health conditions. And if you have been, they like you to have been off it for six months or have a certain note for a million different doctors or whatever the fuck the on-paper regulation is that is basically saying, don't be mentally ill, and if you are, don't have a diagnosis. And that is... Surely that... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Carrot, no. Interject. Well... (laughs) If someone's mentally ill, is it not a good thing for them to be on the medication? <laughs> well, you would think. Right, so obviously that's flawed. Yeah. Um, and I do understand that in jobs which are going to be exposed to situations of like triggering and traumatic nature, yeah. you've got a duty of care to make sure that the people that you're putting in there are equipped to handle it. I get that. 
but to treat diagnosis and treatment as evidence of a problem rather than evidence of management of that problem mm. is totally unethical. Mental illness should not be a barrier to career aspiration, but more importantly, a career aspiration should not be a barrier to recovery or treatment. Problem doubles down with emergency sectors and men. Because men, at least up to our generation, I can't speak for younger, mm. have been brought up to see soldiers and policemen as everyday heroes, aspirational, respectable roles, places to find community, places to find structure. And something about these uniform roles was definitely advertised to be boys in the 90s the same way that ballerina tutus were advertised to us yeah. as like the pinnacle of potential. And when girls' bodies let them down by getting too big to be ballet dancers, they punished them. And we had an epidemic of eating disorders and body shaming. So if men's mental health is the thing letting them down, quotes, stopping them from accessing these roles, which have been ingrained as aspirational, then what are they going to do? Mm. And that's just one example. That's one small, tiny thing that I didn't know that contributes to the systematic shit show of mental health support in general, but more specifically, society's compounding of mental health issues in men. There's no wonder there's a fucking suicide epidemic when even at the most basic level of employment, you can't be the man you want to be and also be mentally ill. Mm. We need to be making it easier for men who are already so deeply conditioned to show no vulnerability to access help without that being at the expense of quote-unquote normal guys' life. We need to make it safe, not just emotionally, but culturally and financially for a man to be mentally ill. There needs to be, for lack of a better term, space. And so to that end, I wanted to say that on this podcast, we moan a lot about men taking up too much space in culture, with male viewpoints and the male gaze and male-centric politics, and that is all true. But the answer isn't for you to take up less, it's just to let us take up as much. And I wanted to say that for any and all of our male listeners, this is a girly-ass space. You're <laughs> very, very welcome. Yeah, There's plenty of room. And, like, I think we kind of throw around the term toxic masculinity a lot. And, and the also... Patriarchy. And the patriarchy. But, like, the patriarchy is a problem for men as well. Exactly. It's not just a problem for us. Like, And that's, that's one exact, of the why yeah, it's Yeah, yeah. So I just... It's been really bugging me. It's been re- like, bugging me is such a <laughs> stupid term, but like, I've been thinking about it a lot this month with November and everything. Mm. And I just wanted to like, say, we we love you all. Yes. And we hope you're okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm laughing at what my insight is after that, but okay. <laughs> Sorry to, to bring the tone to such a serious thing, guys. Alright, um, I'll lighten it. Yeah, you lighten it up, Emily. What's your insight this week? So this insight this week is not like my usual insights because I wanted an excuse to talk about Dash and Lily again. <laughs> um, and also music. So by the time this episode is up, I'll have already posted about this on our Instagram stories as well because I can actually play music on there yeah. to demonstrate my point to you guys. It will be in like my Fleet and Fancies highlight. But anyway, I wanted to talk about the song they used to introduce Dash. So in the books, Dash says he loves the Decemberists, which I also do. Mm. I think they're great. And so in the series, they decided to use a song by them for like his introductory scene, a song called Philomena. Now, I had always thought this song would be amazing as like an opening scene for like a teen or like young adult coming of age movie. Mm. It's quite like a jaunty, upbeat almost kind of like wholesome sounding song which like does sound a little bit Christmassy which I think is mostly the reason why they picked it 
I saw that instrumentals described as 50s innocence when I was double checking the lyrics but the lyrics are a total contrast so we've got long summer days can lead to lazy vices boys all an idol left to their own devices we've also got all I ever wanted in the world was just to live to see a naked girl but I found I quickly bored I wanted more I wanted more Nice. And then finally we have the chorus, which is just brilliant, <laughs> which goes, so I'll be your candle and I'll be your statuette and I'll be your lashing loop of leatherette and oh Philomena, if only you'd let me go down, down, down. I remember watching Dash and Lily, hearing that and being like... <laughs> <laughs> so, not so innocent a song, but they've used it in like the most wholesome show ever. So yeah, like when I heard the music, I was like, huh, that's an odd choice of song for this show's vibe. Mm. But when you think about it, most of the adults in Lily's life say that Dash is no good for her. Yeah. That he's too snarky and mean and a bad influence. Yeah. So I suppose the song might be fitting for the series after all, even though like Dash doesn't turn out to be as like bad an influence as he first appears. He's also um, like quite he's associated with sex like in his first yeah. appearance yeah and in like flashback sequences yes so even though it's a very tame association yeah but he's he's lily is so naive and innocent mm-hmm. that he is like the contrast even though he's just like a teenage boy, yeah, he's just a boy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that was just a random thought i had this week honestly like if i could pick a job and just do it I would be the person who picks a film soundtrack because be I feel like it's a talent of mine. It really, yeah. <laughs> um, it definitely is. But yeah, I just like that my preconceived notions of that song were like kind of subverted, but also still like solidified. Yeah, brought to life. Yeah, I think I just think it's cool. That is That's cool. my thought. Love it. <laughs> you know that I'm so here for analysing lyrics and yeah. them into scenes that they should fit. So. Yes. Thanks. Also, it's a really good song. You should listen to it. it I genuinely really love it. I'm glad that I now know who the artist is because I forgot because I was uh, watching the show. Yeah. It's like, that's a good song and then I forgot. So, yeah. No. Decemberists. They've no. got some good ones. Woo! So, speaking of... Oh. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Speaking of coming of age soundtracks, this week's question is submitted by Rhiannon. I'm going to point out there are two Rhiannons that regularly <laughs> yeah. submit questions. This is Ray, not Rhiannon. <laughs> okay. um, but the question is, what's your going into the sunset song in the coming of age movie of your life? Oh, so like the last song, kind of. Right. The outro. Hmm. That's hard. I know. Let me look at my Spotify. Okay. I don't know. Do you have an answer for this or are you wanting to go first? And then... I, my quick answer, because I tried not to spend too much time thinking about it, was Radio by Lana Del Rey. <laughs> That's a good one. Because I love that chorus um, where just, you know, everything's good. Now my life is sweet like cinnamon. Mm. Um, and I like the idea of that playing on a literal driving into the sunset. Mm. See, I just think the vibe is correct. So I'm hoping... If my life, I hope I hope my life lives up to that being my <laughs> song. I don't know if I can think of one where like the lyrics would apply, mm. but for like the vibe, mm. 
I feel like, I don't know, something like Sister Golden Hair by America. Like okay. something quite like, sounds a little bit retro. Well, mm. it kind of is retro, but like upbeat. I don't know. Yeah, you need something that has like that retro sound because that's so much of your vibe. Yeah. Oh, that or like, I don't know. Like, I Melt With You by Modern English. Like, that kind of vibe of song, I think. I'll go with Sister Golden Hair, because I do really like that song. There you go. That's hard. I know. I'm going to be thinking about that, like, constantly now. I'm not, like, settled on my answer. I just tried to do it so that I wasn't thinking about it any longer than you'd have. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote that one down in, like, a minute. Yeah. I was like, right, that's what I'll say. Cool. But I'm going to be thinking about it, too. Yeah. What's your all... (laughs) <laughs> going into the sunset in the coming of age movie of your life songs please like dm us or email us and tell us yeah that, that could produce an excellent playlist oh yeah please let me compile a new playlist <laughs> yeah loves a playlist come on oh Be yeah your christmas present to emily <laughs> <laughs> that is us and speaking of christmas presents our instagram right now is being turned into an advent calendar yes it is so by the time this episode comes out there'll be probably like a couple weeks of yeah content yeah this is coming out like mid-december isn't it yeah there'll be there'll be a fair bit of advent calendar goodness yeah if you haven't checked it out by the time you're listening to this go have a look yes so we have lots of like photos of us and then a little surprise when you swipe across. Yeah, a little surprise at each door. <laughs> and they're all designed like to be shared, so please repost them. Yeah, repost the little surprises, please. Yes. Um, and share all of our little infatuation. Yes. All the social media is linked in the show notes, and our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. And also, all the stuff we've mentioned today is in the show notes as well. Anything else? I think that's it. The next time you'll hear from us will be Christmas. So until then, yes. take care and we hope that everyone is having a nice December. Yes. Bye. Bye. <laughs>